go on out now, and we will look at Isaiah 43 for our text this morning. We're going to continue on through this book today. We've been studying together through it or hearing God's word through it for the last number of months. Isaiah 43. Now, God had made the Israelites some amazing promises, some amazing promises that would give comfort and encouragement to them as they would have to wait for a long time for the fulfillment of those promises, something to sustain them and grant them the grace to persevere. And in the same way, he's given us incredible promises about our future, right? You think about the promises that God has made that we're still waiting for, the redemption of our bodies, the perfection of our souls, the renewal of the earth and the heavens in a state of glory, and the eternal, immortal existence that God has promised us in his own presence. We're all waiting for the fulfillment of these things. We don't yet experience them. Right now we have pain and suffering and sin and temptation, and we end our lives in physical death. And so what is there to sustain us while we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises? What is there to give us faith to persevere, to continue to believe and to hold on to God as being true and to everything that he said as being sure? What has he given us? And he points us to the same wondrous reality to which he pointed the people of Israel as he began to comfort them when they were about to go through a great, tribulation. And the comfort that he gave to them could be summarized in these words, behold your God. Behold your God. If you really got an eyeful of who your God is, you would be sustained through anything, waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. Who is this great God? Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to unfold the wondrous character of God, to point our eyes upwards. He is the incomparable God, the incomparable God. There's no rival in all the universe. He is the unwearied God, faithful to fulfill every single one of his purposes. He is the sovereign God over all of history. He is the saving God in his mercy. And now beginning in this text and running really all the way through and into the next chapter, Isaiah highlights this, that he is God alone that he is the only true and living God. This is our God. And my concern really is that the Lord will sustain you, that he will sustain you when you experience what doubtless most Christians experience, at least many, and that is when the temptations of Satan come along to begin to doubt whether God is real, whether the Bible is really true, whether the Christian religion is really right, and the temptation flits across your mind, young person, or teenager, or new believer, or even perhaps in some cases a seasoned believer. The temptation flits across your mind, put there by the evil one himself. What if this is all just so much foolishness? What if you only believe this, not because it's actually true, but because it's just the way you were raised? You just This is just confirmation bias, and you're going to just keep believing it because this is the way you were taught. What is real? What about the other religions of the world? Am, am I just a Christian because I was, I was 
raised as a Christian or because I was con- uh, confronted in a time of crisis in my life by Christian people and it just happened to be that way. Perhaps if I'd have been confronted in a, in a crisis moment in my life by a Buddhist, I'd become a Buddhist. You know, the, the, the tempter has all sorts of ways of putting it into our minds that perhaps we are not serving the one true and living God. Perhaps this is not real. What about other religions? What about other holy books? What will happen when we die? What will really happen? I mean, is Jesus really going to return? Is God's testimony about all of these things really reliable? Or am I just holding on to a vapor? Am I just living in an imaginary world? And it is my concern. And I don't think it's entirely unfounded. It is my concern that, that people who are confronted with those kinds of temptations of the evil one will have a grounding in God's Word to sustain their faith in the one true and living God who actually exists. This is what, and this is not, this is what Isaiah is dealing with in his, in his culture. Uh, this is what, uh, what many people in, in cultures all around our world today are dealing with. Is there one true and living God? And if so, who is he? So let me give you the background here of this text, and then we'll look and see what is happening here. So the end of the first half of this book, back in chapter 39, as you remember, God prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of his people to Babylon because of their sin as a chastening from his hand. And that, of course, that prophecy was actually still over a 100 years in the future for these people, and it came to them actually at a time when Babylon really wasn't the great world power. It was Assyria, and yet the Lord prophesied that they would be taken captive into Babylon and would be enslaved there. Well, the Bible says that uh, in chapter 41 here that the Lord begins to prophesy a deliverance from Babylon and a return to the land. In fact, in chapter 44, he he will literally name Israel's deliverer, King Cyrus, by name before he ever comes on the scene. One of the most amazing predictions in all of the Bible. And two weeks ago, we began to look at chapter 43 here, which is our text. And in this chapter, Isaiah pictures their future deliverance from captivity in Babylon against the backdrop of the exodus from Egyptian captivity so many years before. And you can see this kind of language is being used. Just take a look. Verse 3, remember this from a couple of weeks ago. He reminds them, I gave Egypt for your ransom. Remember that their deliverance from Egypt came at the cost of the death of the firstborn in all the land. Only the Lord provided for his people a substitute that they might be spared. Then in verse 2, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you through the rivers. They will not overwhelm you. And this recalls, of course, to them, they're passing through the Red Sea on dry land. Uh, The most amazing miracle in all of their history, the passing through the Jordan River into the Promised Land by the power of God over all that He had made, these things were to be in their minds as they thought about His promises of deliverance from Babylon. And so He's able to say now, when you pass through the fires, which He's used in the end of chapter 42 as a picture of His judgment in Babylon, when you pass through the fires, 
they will not consume you. Just like I brought you out of Egypt, I will bring you, in fact, out of Babylon. And so deliverance from Babylonian captivity is couched then in the language of deliverance from the Egyptian captivity. And now with that background, verses 8 and following here will be our text. And let me just set up for you what's going to happen. Isaiah sees a vision that is in a very dramatic setting. And the setting is as if it is a heavenly courtroom or a heavenly contest or challenge that's set up. And all of the nations of the world are summoned to that courtroom, gathered together with all of their various gods and religions in order to make their case for who is the true God. In order to present their witnesses and to prove the deity and the power of their gods. That's what you'll see, I think, as we look at the first part of this section, which is verses 8 and 9, where the Lord summons the court together, calls this court into assembly, and issues a challenge. Look at verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears, all the nations together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this? And show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. So you have beginning here a summons. The Lord summoning the people in verse 8. First of all, to bring out, who does he call into the courtroom first? The people who are blind yet have eyes and who are deaf yet have ears. You know who that is by now? As we've gone through this book? Right? Chapter 42, verse 19, spells it out. Who is blind, the Lord said, but my servant. And in chapter 41, verse 8, he identified that as the nation of Israel. Who is blind but my servant Israel, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. And his eyes are open, but he does not hear. And of course, Israel, that nation, was supposed to be God's servant. They were supposed to be God's dedicated messenger, his witness to the nations around them, but most of those people were deaf to his word and blind to his revelation. They are called to this assembly. But also, all of the nations, he says, right? You see that there in verse 8? All of the nations are gathered together. All of the peoples. So you just kind of picture Israel coming into the courtroom and then Egypt and Assyria, and Babylon, and the Moabites, the Canaanites, the peoples of Cush, and Arabia, and Philistia, and Tyre, and Sidon, and all of their various gods and goddesses summoned in, all of the world's religions summoned into the courtroom of heaven, and then you have a challenge presented to them in the end of verse 9. And the challenge is to bring out their, what? Bring out witnesses. Bring witnesses to make your case that you are truly God. Testimony to the divinity of their gods, of the reality and the sovereignty and the knowledge and the wisdom of their gods. Bring out your testimony that your gods are worthy of worship and confidence and trust. I mean, what evidence is there that the world's religions and the world's gods are trustworthy. This is what the this is the challenge the Lord puts down. 
And then you see in the middle of verse 9 the specific question at issue here. The very specific question at issue, the middle of verse 9, who among all of these nations and their gods, who among all of the world's religions can declare this? And I think in the context, the this is the prediction of God's deliverance of Judah from captivity, which at this point is yet, you know, still, as I said, over 100 years, 150 years in the future. Who among them can show this, can declare this, can predict the future like I can? And, notice also, who among them can show us the former things? In other words, the deliverances in the past according to the prophetic word of their God. And of course, in the context here, the Lord has in mind the great exodus from Egypt. So the Lord is pointing backwards to what he did in Egypt, and he's speaking about what he's prophesied now that will come to pass in the deliverance from Babylon. And he's saying, what nation in all of the face of the earth, what God, what religion can make such bold predictions and then deliver on them every time? That's the question, isn't it? What religion makes such bold predictions in the face of overwhelming odds and then delivers on them every time? The question at issue is this. Who can declare in advance what he will do and then do all that he declares? Who is it? Let him come forth. Bring out your witness. So the stage is set, right? The gauntlet is, is thrown down. And then in the verses 10 to 13, we have the second major section here in our text, which is the Lord's witnesses. And this is where we spend most of our time here. The Lord brings out His witnesses, verses 10 to 13. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, as He's speaking to His people, Israel. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This is the Lord's witness. Here's his testimony. And his testimony is embodied in that nation that he has called by his own name. That people whom he has brought to himself, God's servant Israel is brought out as his witness. Exhibit A, if you will, in the courtroom. Bring them forth. Now I want to ask you, what kind of lawyer, remember what said about this witness earlier? What kind of lawyer brings out a blind witness, right? Puts him on the stand. Now tell us what you saw. Or what kind of witness calls the deaf to testify to what he's heard? You kind of wonder, you know, what is the Lord doing? Does the Lord really know what he's doing here? Why does he make those people, that nation, his witness and his testimony? And I think... On the one hand, it's partly in order to demonstrate that his testimony is so unassailable that it doesn't rely on a friendly witness. Even in modern court proceedings, right, it is a major coup 
by the prosecutor, if he is able to elicit solid evidence from a hostile witness, you might expect that a, a friendly witness will do everything he can to help the case, maybe even bending the truth a little bit. But someone who's, who's not friendly to your case and who, who is presented as the great testimony of, your, of, of the truthfulness of your claims, what a, what a coup that is. I think that's partly what the Lord is doing. And then, of course, we also remember that the Lord is intent to demonstrate all through this text that national Israel is not his ultimate servant, his ultimate messenger or witness. Where national Israel failed, the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, succeeded and was, in fact, the perfect witness to the truthfulness of God. If you want to see the greatness of God on display, you look at the Lord Jesus. So he calls out his witness, and his witness is this nation, Israel. And in verse 10, the end of verse 10, you see what his, pro, what his uh, purpose is for that witness, right? You see it in the end of verse 10 with the word that, T-H-A-T, indicating the purposes. So the Lord says, he calls this witness that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, that I am he who, that I am he, and I think this is the answer in verse 10 here to the question that was posed to the whole earth back in verse 9. Remember the question? You might want to underline the question and draw an arrow down to the end of verse 10 where the answer is. The, end, the question is in verse 9, who among all of the peoples can declare this and show us the former things? And the answer in the end of verse 10 is, I am he. I can do this. God's purpose in manifesting his deity was that this people might know him and that they might believe him. And of course, sadly, much of those physical people did not believe, but the Lord did have his remnant who were his true people. So what was it that they were supposed to know and believe and understand and bear witness to? And that's what's unfolded in the end of verse 10 to verse 13. Three things that God's dealings with Israel throughout their history was supposed to bear witness to. Number one, the fact that there is no other God. What is it that they were witness to? The, his dealings with these people, what did they bear testimony to? The fact that there is no other God. The end of verse 10. Take a look. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Unlike the complicated genealogies of all of the pagan gods, you've read some of the, the pagan mythologies, this god proceeds from none and is succeeded by none. He stands alone. And he has no superior, no god before him, and no inferior. He is in a category all by himself. All other gods are formed gods, right? All other gods are created, brought into being, shaped with the hands of men, but he alone eternally exists unformed and uncreated. And I just have to pause here to say that this directly contradicts Latter-day Saint or Mormon 
teaching about God. Latter-day Saint teaching is that God was once a what? A man. And was brought forth from his father and mother gods. And further, they teach that Jesus, whom they identify as Yahweh, Jehovah, is a different God, a different being from Elohim, God the Father, as it were. And that mortal men, like you and I, can actually progress to become gods ourselves. This is truly the most polytheistic religion in the world. What does the Lord say? Look at it again. Get get yourself grounded in this text. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And listen, I I don't care how nice and kind your Mormon neighbor is, or how clean a content of entertainment that they may produce. These people are idolaters, and you should give them no time. Israel's witness to the one and only God was embedded right in their creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, Elohim, uh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There is but one God, and that belief, of course, was supposed to impact their actual behavior. Because if there is one God and one God alone, then you should love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You do not have divided love, divided allegiance and loyalty, pitting one God against another, serving one when it'll do you good and turning to another. He is the only God and as such deserves all of your loyalty and trust and confidence and submission. There is one God and one God alone. This is what God's dealings with the people of Israel bore witness to. Just think of the Exodus and the ten plagues of the Exodus and how they demonstrated God's power, not just to deliver His people, but specifically, Exodus chapter 12 says that this was in order to demonstrate God's power over the gods of Egypt. That's why God did it that way. Did you know that? And so in the plague that turned the Nile into blood, He brought His judgment on the river gods and the plague of the frogs on the goddess Heket, and the plagues of the insects that arose out of the dust humbled the Egyptian earth god, and the flies mocked the sacred scarab, and the plague on the livestock, his power over Apis the bull god, and the boils mocked the Egyptian priests and their gods of healing, and the hail from Egypt in defiance of their sky gods, and he sent locusts to consume their crops and that their gods were supposed to protect, and darkness that blotted out the very sun god Ra. And then in the tenth and final climactic plague, he put to death the very son of God, as it was supposed, the son of the Pharaoh of Egypt. The Lord was intentional about all that he did. Why? What is? Why did he do all of this with Israel? In order to demonstrate, friends, in an unmistakable, historical, literal way that He is the one and only living God. And the fact that helpless slaves were delivered from the most religious 
nation on the face of the planet in terms of their numbers of gods and goddesses without any fighting whatsoever on their part stands through these now 16 centuries as a powerful witness that there is no other God. I mean, how else do you explain the existence and the survival of those people in light of those circumstances? God is bearing witness through those people that there is no other God. Secondly, he's bearing witness to this. Verse 11, I... I am the Lord, Yahweh, and besides me there is what? No Savior. Not only is there no other God, there is no other Savior. And I love how he speaks not only of his power and of his might, but also of his grace to these people. Verse 12, he goes on and says, I, now listen to this, I declared my salvation and I saved them according to my declaration. And I proclaimed that salvation when, in what circumstance? When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. He reminds them that he declared ahead of time that he would deliver them from Egypt. And that's what you know heightens this witness and testimony. And then he did what he declared by saving them by his own might, and then he proclaimed his salvation after the fact. Remember Rahab heard about the salvation that God had given the people, leading them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, drowning the Pharaoh's army and bringing them all the way by his might and power. And she said in Joshua chapter 2, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What did she come to the conclusion of? Watching the the history of this people play out. She came to the conclusion, there is literally no other God. This God is the God in heaven and the God in earth. He is the one and only living God. The Lord demonstrated that. He put it out in testimony to the world by what he did with those people all those centuries ago. And don't let the, the length of time that's passed since this great act cause you to, 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 think, you know, to think, well, it, can, it hardly seems true. These are historical, literal realities that shaped the history of the world in which we live. During all of the great deliverance of the Exodus, the Lord reminds them that no other gods were in their midst. I mean, that would come later when they would struggle with false gods. Right? Once they got into the land of Canaan, they started adopting the philosophies and the thought patterns and the beliefs and the worship of those people around them, which we're all tempted to do, that would come later. But throughout all of this amazing redemption from Egypt and the greatness of there weren't any other gods to attribute this to. This was attributable to one God only, the Lord God of heaven and earth, Jehovah. And of course, people even today believe that, well, there are many ways to salvation. There are many paths of salvation. You can go the Jesus path, or you can go the Buddha path, or the Muhammad path, or the Krishna path, or whatever it is. But the Lord's dealings with these people through their history demonstrates that God alone is the Savior. And God alone would deliver them from Egypt and from Babylon, and He alone saves men from His judgment today. They bore witness to that. There is no other God. There is no other Savior And thirdly, Israel bore witness that there is no other sovereign 
verse 13. Also, henceforth I am he, that is, I am he who predicts and fulfills his purposes. And there is none that can deliver from my hand. You see we're talking about sovereignty here? And I work, and who can turn it back? When I choose, when I decide, when I lay my hand to something, no one stops me. He is the only sovereign. And he said, from henceforth I am he. And that's a little bit troublesome in terms of, of, uh, of, of, of translating and interpreting because the Hebrew is literally, from the day I am he. So then you have to ask yourself, from what day? And that's where the differences come because we don't, we're not completely sure. Some people believe it means from the first day, the, when there ever was a day. So you could, you could read this, from eternity I am he. Or it could be from the day in which he delivers his people which is the whole point of this text, either in, from Egypt or from Babylon. And of course, you know, he is who he's always been. It's not just from this day henceforth that he is the one true and living God, but who he is has been manifested in a greater way in light of his mighty acts. From this day on, he has put it on public display that he is the one true and living God in a greater and more dramatic way than he ever has before. And he did that in the Exodus, and he's going to do that again in the deliverance from Babylon. The Lord is sovereign, and when he judges, no one can deliver. When God determines, none can undo it. And you know, I just want to tell you, when you are perhaps in the quietness of your own heart, tempted to doubt whether the God of the Bible is the one true and living God. I want to encourage you to think about the history of these people. I mean, the Lord literally puts that out in front of you as a witness and a testimony of His truthfulness. How many ancient enemies of those people are destroyed? Oh, we only know those their enemies because of the, the Bible and because of archaeology. They're wiped off the map. But the Lord preserved His people all through this time. Whatever God has had predicted about that nation, it came to pass. They were a witness to the sovereignty of God. And so, the court of heaven is convened. The witnesses have now been summoned No other God of any nation is able to declare in advance what he will do and to do all that he declares. But God has summoned Israel as his witness and the whole history of his dealings with those people bear testimony that he alone is God, that he alone is Savior, that he alone is Sovereign. And we come to the final section verses 14 to 21, where the Lord really highlights a very specific testimony to his deity. And at first, he predicts what he will do in the near term. And this prediction and its subsequent fulfillment will become a specific instance of Israel's testimony to the deity of their God. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, 
for your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. He's saying, I'm going to destroy Babylon. Even the Chaldeans, I will, I will bring them down in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He's saying, I will defeat Babylon just like I defeated Egypt. And I will lead my people out of captivity once again. And in verse 16, he borrows the language of the Exodus to, to continue to speak about what he's going to do. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and they cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. And of course, that borrows from that song of praise that Moses sang that we read in Exodus chapter 15 earlier. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. They sink down and do not rise again. The Lord said, I'm going to bring destruction on the people of Babylon, (coughs) this great nation that will be raised up. I will bring them low and I will deliver my people. So how does that help us? You know, one of the great helps is that we actually, from our viewpoint, we can look back and see, guess what? That is exactly what the Lord did. In 539 B.C., God put his handwriting on the wall, literally, for King Belshazzar. That very night, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians just as God had predicted. And the very next year, Cyrus the Great of Persia, predicted by Isaiah, years and years before, sent out a decree that, guess what? The Jews can return, the peoples can return to their own lands, worship God, and again in the city of Jerusalem, just as God had determined. And today, friends, you can not only read about this in the Bible, you can literally buy a plane ticket, fly across the ocean, the British Museum in London, You can go into there, you can see the Nabonidus Chronicle and the Cyrus Cylinder. And if you were able to read cuneiform, you could could discern the very history being recounted that God said through his prophet all those years before would happen. Exactly like he said. Now, why did God do that? I'm going to tell you, you young person sitting here, you adults sitting here, God did that partly to do this, to, to, to put before you a testimony, a witness of His truthfulness, of the reality that there is one God alone in heaven and earth who is sovereign over all things. No other gods. Our faith rests on more than just a, a burning in the bosom, but on real, verifiable history. Not that this is the ground of our faith. Our faith is grounded in Christ alone. Amen? But the Lord continues to strengthen, to encourage our faith by the way that He sets these things before us Himself. I mean, He's the one that told us to think about these things. The one true and living God has declared that history beforehand and He has sovereignly worked out His saving plan exactly as He said. But then in verse 18, the Lord begins to, I think, look 
even beyond the return of Jewish exiles from Babylon. Look what he says. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a what? A new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you now per- do you not perceive it? I will make Here's the new thing, all right? The new thing is this. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert and the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. The Lord said, I am doing a new thing. Now, in one sense, you could say that the return from exile in Babylon is a new thing compared to what he did in in Egypt. But this, I believe, looks even beyond that to something that is even greater. This new thing, it's not mentioned at all in the first half of this book, chapters 1 to 39. But when you get to chapter 40 and the rest of the book, the Lord begins to unfold the revelation about this new thing. So in chapter 49, 42, excuse me, verse 9, in the context in which he talks about the call of his servant, the Messiah, he says, new things I now declare. And here, of course, in this text, he says, I am doing a new thing. And then in chapter 48 and verse 6, he says, from this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. The Lord is setting about to do a new thing that is only foreshadowed all along the way before. A new and greater thing than just bringing back Jews from Babylon to that ancient city of Jerusalem. And the Lord continues to talk about it in other terms, like in chapter 42, verse 10, when the Lord's new people are called to sing, quote, a new song. And in chapter 62, verse 2, when he says, you shall be called by a new name. And in chapter 65, verse 8, when the offspring of Jacob will be like new wine. And in chapter 65, when there's a new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) This is what's being unfolded. And here's a little glimpse of it here. In very interesting language in verse 20, he says, the wild beasts will worship me. Now, I don't believe God is talking about being worshipped by literal ostriches. I suspect that what's going on here is that the beasts are being used, as they often are in the Scripture, as images for the nations of the earth. Remember Daniel's vision of the nations that would come, and they're all pictured as various kinds of beasts. And, of course, you have that kind of language in so many uh, parts of the Scriptures. So these... These nations, these beastly nations are going to come and worship the one true and living God. Now, what kind of beasts are they? Well, they're ostriches and jackals. Some translations have owls, I think, and jackals. Do you know anything about it, all those creatures? What kind of creatures are they? Think back to, think back to the Mosaic Law. They're all unclean creatures. What seems to me to be the case is that the Lord is seeing even beyond the return of a physical people to an ancient city, but is seeing the ingathering, the conversion 
of the nations of the world being brought into his kingdom to worship and serve him. And he will cause the river of life to spring up in nations that had long been spiritual deserts. And the book of Revelation, I think, continues capturing a lot of this stuff. And I wrote way more than I'm going to be able to say, but in Revelation chapter 15, God's unified people sing both the song of, interestingly, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And chapter 14 calls it a new song. Same sort of language of Isaiah. And in chapter 15, verse 3, here is that new song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O God, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And that's exactly what happened, just as Isaiah predicted. Christ's church spread from a grain like a mustard seed, right? A handful of people gathered in an upper room spread through Jerusalem and out across Judea and up into Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And as we sit here this morning, 2.5 billion of those people from the nations of the earth name the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord said to that handful of people, you will be my witnesses. Now, I want to ask you, who else is behind that but the one who said that that's what he was going to do? The Lord is setting that out in front of you. The, the growth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he is literally setting that out in front of you as testimony, as witness to the truthfulness of the one living God. And when you're tempted to doubt whether God is true, whether He can truly do what He said in, in your life and in the world around you, whether His promises are really going to come to pass someday, though we've been waiting them for them for years and years and years, when you're tempted with doubt, remember that he is the God who declares in advance what he will do and does all that he declares. He bears witness by bringing slaves out of Egypt, by bringing captives out of Babylon, and by bringing sinners into the kingdom of his Son from among the peoples across the face of this earth. And so he alone... He alone is worthy of your worship, your trust, your confidence, your allegiance. And if the Lord has redeemed you, you are a part of that great testimony, right? You are a part of that witness that is being born to the world of the one true and living God. You are my witnesses, he said. At the very end of this text, he said, if the Lord has formed you for himself, he did so that you might declare his praise. That's his intent for you. If the Lord has redeemed you, say so. For you are his witness. Your life, your words, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has formed that we might declare His praise, for He deserves it.
He is the one true and living God. Let's bow in prayer. O God of heaven, we thank you for remembering us in our weakness and strengthening our faith by bearing testimony to yourself. It is our sin that keeps us in unbelief, but you have graciously condescended to us. Strengthen us to grant us faith and then to strengthen that faith. We rejoice in your word today. Lord, remember any in here with your kindness who is being tempted. We pray that you would hold on to all who are yours. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.